It's New Year's Eve, 1945. I'm in Midtown Manhattan. It's the first New Year's Eve since the end of World War II, and a feeling of optimism and excitement fills the air. Times Square is already buzzing in anticipation of the countdown. The American economy is going through a massive shift from wartime to peacetime. During the war, factories were humming with workers building planes and stitching uniforms. As government spending on the war effort faded away, macroeconomists were worried. Would the economy lag? Could the country even fall into another depression? And yet, roughly six months from now, June 1946, inflation will begin to spike from pent-up consumer demand and the lowering of price and credit controls. How did inflation rise to staggering levels without dragging down the booming economy? And why did it reverse course so quickly? The answers may add clarity to our current economic environment. Before tackling these urgent challenges, I need to make an important stop at my favorite spot in the city, Keene Steakhouse in Midtown. It's already an iconic restaurant, and the menu looks pretty much the same. My order? What else but the mutton chop and a Glenlivet? Neat. There is one big difference. In 1945, this beautiful steak dinner has set me back only two dollars and twenty-five cents. In 2022, the same meal is over a hundred dollars. Good thing inflation is a two-way street. To understand today's investment landscape, it's important to know how we got here. I'm Albert Chen, and this is the Outthinking Investor, a podcast from PGM that untangles the past, the present-day opportunities, and the future possibilities of the financial tools we take for granted. In this episode, we'll look for answers on where the U.S. economy is headed by focusing on one key question: Is there evidence of secular stagnation or secular stagflation? Helping us navigate the complexities of monetary policy is one of the most influential economists over the last three decades, Larry Summers, former chief economist at the World Bank, president of Harvard University, and U.S. Treasury Secretary. In a moment, I'll take my seat in the audience at the London School of Economics, where Summers is speaking as part of the PGM lecture series in honor of Charles Goodart. The inflationary spike of the mid-1940s looks similar to that of 2022. According to Summers, we're less likely to see a rapid reversal. His argument goes something like this: The U.S. entered a period of secular stagnation around 2015. And by secular stagnation, he means persistently low levels of growth and real interest rates. Then the pandemic hit, and the economy went from sluggish to overheated, virtually overnight. A massive amount of government stimulus supported individuals and businesses. Now, inflation is spiking from pent-up demand, higher wages, and an energy shock. Both the Fed and the market are unsure of what needs to be done to restore price stability and a healthy economy. Can you count how many times you've heard the word "unprecedented" over the past two years? The tricky part is that if policymakers don't get it right, we risk going into secular stagflation—a long period of high inflation and low growth, which is difficult to fight. 
Despite the Federal Reserve's actions, the economy could still go into recession and secular stagnation could then return. The amount of uncertainty creates real challenges. Economist Alvin Hansen coined the term secular stagnation back in the late 1930s. He believed that, at the time, the high savings rate and low investing rate created an imbalance that was a drag on consumer demand, economic growth, and inflation. Hansen saw deficit spending as the key to growth. 80 years later, Summers reintroduced Hansen's theory as a framework for understanding the current environment. How did it come to mind for Summers? We were suffering extremely slow growth, even though the economy was far short of potential. Prior to that, we had suffered through the great financial crisis. Prior to that, we had had a reasonably robust economy propelled by a massive housing bubble and a vast erosion of credit standards. Prior to that, we had suffered a slow recovery from the recession induced by the tech and stock market bubble of 2000. Prior to that, we had enjoyed reasonably robust growth supported by the wealth effects emerging from that tech bubble. During the 20-year period from 1997 to 2017, there were essentially no moments, perhaps there was a stray quarter or two, when it could reasonably have been asserted that the United States economy was growing in a healthy way alongside sustainable and healthy financial conditions. Hansen's concepts of the changes in savings and investing rates and what that meant for the broader economy seemed to fit. Maybe Hansen was just ahead of his time. But the U.S. in 2016 didn't look anything like the U.S. of 1937. There were changes in plausible estimates of changes in savings and investment propensity with particular causes that fully could have accounted for what we just observed. Increased uncertainty tends to raise the desire to save for the future and tends to discourage new physical investments. Efficiencies in the use of capital exemplified by my cell phone, by e-commerce, by the fact that the number of square feet a law firm requires per lawyer fell in half during the first 15 years of the 21st century. Higher increased inequality suggests increases in the propensity to save and much slower labor force growth and population growth suggests reductions in the demand for housing and reductions in the demand for new equipment and new office space. And so it seemed to me that at that point, it was plausible to suppose that we could see the declines in reasons for the decline in the propensity to save and the propensity to invest that it was closer to right to think of very low interest rates set by central banks 
and very expansionary fiscal policies pursued by governments as endogenous responses to that chronic excess of saving over investment than it was to see them as autonomous policy choices that were shaping events. So macroeconomic policy reflected the need to absorb all this saving. Fast forward to 2021, and the world is starting to come out of the COVID lockdown. U.S. GDP was expected to drop by 2 to 3% because of COVID. We embarked on a fiscal stimulus program of between 13 to 14% of GDP accommodated by zero interest rates, substantial central bank expansion, and supplemented by a substantial increase in balance sheets as a consequence of the spending that had been deferred from 2020 was by far the largest expansionary policy that had been pursued since the Second World War and was approximately 60% as large as the expansionary policy that was pursued during the Second World War with none of the rationing or other constraints that were applied during the Second World War. This level of spending within this kind of environment seems pretty likely to produce an overheated economy. Summers himself warned lawmakers against spending too much and risking an inflationary spike. And no one really thought about supply shocks at the time. But of course, that was fuel to the inflationary fire. For context, we can compare that with another recent episode of massive fiscal stimulus. The Obama stimulus was somewhat smaller than the projected GDP gap during the year in which it was being applied. In contrast, the 2020 stimulus was six times as large as the projected GDP gap. There is no one, no one, not anywhere, who believes that the Obama stimulus should have been three times as large as it was, let alone six times as large as it was. The difficulty in setting monetary policy just can't be overstated. So many variables driving inflation and economic growth, some compounding, some counteracting, all in motion at the same time. Case in point, let's go back to 2018. GDP growth had been accelerating and the Fed was bracing for inflation to wake from a long slumber. The Fed raised rates four times in 2018, but then the inflation rate reversed. Here's Fed Chairman Jay Powell in the summer of 2019 with an almost eerie foreshadowing of where the Fed finds itself in 2022. But I, I think we really have learned, though, that the economy can sustain much lower unemployment than we thought without troubling levels of inflation. Mm -hmm. And I think we I would look at today. It's easy to blame the Fed or blame their forecasting models when things don't go well. Models are helpful guideposts. But learning and adapting is key for any model or application. There is a core statistical problem. If you statistically examine a constant quantity, you will conclude that nothing has a very large effect on it. That is essentially the reality of the last 40 years. 
And so all kinds of statistical exercises that concluded that whatever you did, inflation wasn't going to be that different from 2 or 3%. That is, I think, the core reason why this fairly egregious error was made. Does this mean that secular stagnation ideas are no longer relevant today? No. No more than the coming of World War II meant that secular stagnation ideas were not the right theory for understanding the economy prior to the coming of World War II. How does that help us think about the appropriate interest rate level for the current economic environment? The answer might take you back to microeconomics 101. There are going to be three necessary parameters in my back of the envelope calculation. How much do we need to bring inflation down? At one level, the answer is inflation's running at close to 9% and we need to bring it down to 2%. But surely Team Transitory has many good arguments and surely there is a reason to think that a variety of commodity price inflation may revert, that bottlenecks will eventually be solved, that when those bottlenecks are solved, the shifts of demand will, on balance, operate in the direction of reducing inflation. Alan Blinder and Paul Krugman have both estimated that we have 2% of inflation that we need to reduce. That seems to me to be too low a figure. So I'm going to assume that we need to reduce inflation by 2.5%. And since we're talking about economics, the dismal science, that estimate is about as likely to be low as it is to be high. To be conservative, we err on the side that it could be too low. Second parameter we have to estimate to do a back-of-the-envelope calculation is how much does inflation come down when you induce economic slack? This is the parameter that was very frequently discussed in the 1970s and 1980s, but has largely fallen out of economic discourse as inflation reduction in industrial countries has ceased to be an important issue. The prevailing view in the late 1970s, and particularly in the post-Volcker period, is that that sacrifice ratio is two, or is in the neighborhood of two. That is, if you have one year with unemployment two percentage points above the neutral rate, you'll reduce the inflation rate by 1%. The third parameter we need to gauge, we can calculate from what I've already said, that in order to bring down inflation, we are going to need to have five point years of unemployment above the non-accelerating or neutral rate of unemployment. And the question then is, what is that neutral rate of unemployment? We need two years of 7.5% unemployment, or five years of 6% unemployment, or if you could imagine it, it could really happen, one year of 10% unemployment. 
Not only are those numbers shocking to hear, having spent decades in a low-rate environment, but they aren't even close to what we're hearing from the Federal Reserve or from analysts. At the moment when it was seen as making a major commitment to restrictive policy, that the unemployment rate would rise to 4.1% briefly as the inflation rate declined to 2%. Indeed, of 19 voting members of the Federal Open Market Committee who provided forecasts, the highest estimate of where unemployment would reach was 4.5%. Now you can judge my calculation and there are plenty of questions you could ask about it, but the gap between 7.5% unemployment for two years and 4.1% unemployment for one year is, I think it is fair to say, immense. What does all this mean for the argument of secular stagflation? Let's move from the theoretical world to an applied example. When I say I will pay any price for a worldwide trip, but that I expect to pay $400, how committed I am to take that around the world trip. Is our central bank or other central banks prepared to do what is necessary to stabilize inflation if something like what I have calculated is necessary? That is a question on which each market observer will have to make their own judgment. It may take more than one effort at stabilization before stabilization is achieved. Does that mean that our expectations for monetary policy going forward should change? If successful inflation stabilization is going to be achieved, it is likely to require economic slack substantially beyond what is currently contemplated. How high does that mean interest rates will have to be increased? Here, I think it is a serious mistake to render confident judgment. The approach taken by many in the central banking community of saying that they believe the neutral rate of interest is 2.5%, 2.6%, and their intention is to raise interest rates to 3% or 3.5%, therefore they are moving to restrictive policy, is, I would submit, a classic example of a summa can opener economics. Ah, you might have recognized the old economist joke. A physicist, an engineer, and an economist are stranded on a deserted island when they find a can of soup that's washed up on shore. But how do they open it? The physicist says, let's start a fire so the open flames can explode the can. No way, says the engineer. We'll lose all the soup. Let's rig a pulley from a palm tree and smash it with a rock. Too complicated, says the economist. Let's just assume we have a can opener. According to Summers, the 2.5% neutral interest rate is based on flawed assumptions. They're assuming a can opener. That seems insufficient to move inflation back toward 2%. Instead of looking at where interest rates need to go to tamp down inflation, we should look at where real interest rates need to be 
That is, we need to add the inflation component. Announced plans of the central bank seem to be associated with quite substantial declines in stock prices, quite substantial declines in consumer confidence, quite substantial upwards assessments of recession probabilities, which brings me back to where I started. Perhaps we are now living in a world with a very low, neutral real rate of interest. And so benchmarks that we have traditionally thought of may be quite inappropriate. In other words, it may not be necessary to raise interest rates to extremely high levels to induce quite substantial degrees of economic slack. What lessons can we take from this in guiding monetary policy? I believe that it is likely to be necessary to make much more difficult choices than the policy process has yet contemplated between acceptance of slack and acceptance of sustained above target inflation. And in that way, I fear we are going to have elements of both secular stagnation and secular stagflation. What if we do get several years of unexpected inflation and then years of unexpected unemployment? None of this was supposed to happen because it wasn't in the model. What if secular stagnation takes hold and uncertainty and fear ramp up to a confidence shock, driving saving even higher? We've just been through a period where everybody bought a new television and everybody bought a new appliance. And so after you've had a massive accumulation phase, then the stuff's there for a while and you can only have so many appliances. And so for a variety of demand categories, it may be that we're going to be a little bit glutted with them. And that would only operate to reinforce the considerations that you adduced. Yet another consideration that goes in this direction is that construction is half as large a share of the economy as it was 30 years ago. And it's construction which is most likely to be interest sensitive. And so if you have fewer and fewer interest sensitive sectors, it follows that when you have a given investment savings gap, the magnitude of the decline in the interest rate that's necessary to close it has increased. Does it sound like we're entering a kind of 1970s Volcker moment? Summers has two interesting observations to share. One is that with Judd Kramer, I have gone back and reconstructed the CPI going back to 1950, calculated in the way that it's calculated today, rather than calculated in the way that it was calculated at the time. If you do it that way, the magnitude of the Volcker disinflation is not that much greater, particularly if you use core CPI. The magnitude of the Volcker disinflation that was achieved is not hugely different than the magnitude of the disinflation that would be necessary to take core CPI down to 2% today. They're of comparable magnitude. A lot of those very high CPI figures that one always reads about in the late 70s and early 80s reflect the fact that at that time, 
the mortgage rate itself was an input to the CPI. So the way we measure price increases today is very different than how we did in the 1970s, which was the last time the U.S. saw persistently high inflation. One of the things that I have sort of learned over time is that we tend to think of crises as these monolithic events. And in fact, things tend to be more jagged during them than one recalls many years later. So for example, there were four bull markets of more than a third between 1929 and 1933 in the United States. And some similar proposition was true in the great bear market after the tech bubble collapsed. And if one looks at the great Volcker disinflation, in fact, there was a moment in 1980 when Volcker eased up quite substantially, and then inflation accelerated, and then he engaged in the actions for which he's justly revered. But even Volcker had a first false start towards a Volcker moment, was punished by the market, and then delivered the Volcker moment. And so I think that's relevant in thinking about what's likely to happen going forward and is part of the reason why I was suggesting that secular stagflation was a significant risk. But as the great Yogi Berra knew, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. Two of the known unknowns at the top of this list, demographics and globalization. The aging population could reverse some momentum if there is sufficient spending down of savings. Summer sees another possibility. As people expect to enjoy more years in retirement, they'll increase the savings rate. That could combine with a slowdown in the labor force. And as for globalization, does that help or hinder the situation? And what if deglobalization picks up? While the U.S. current account surplus and deficit changed a lot, and the Japanese changed and Europe changed, the aggregate flow to the industrial world or from the industrial world was never very big in either direction and didn't fluctuate very much at all over the last 30 years, which tells me that there's not much scope for deglobalization to be a major factor interfering with this downward trend in real interest rates. Whereas the technology around the relative price of capital goods and all of that seems to me something that's likely to persist. So my current instinct is to think that these forces will be with us for uh, quite some time to come. All of this focuses on the U.S., but other countries and regions are also experiencing higher inflation and slower growth. In the United States, it is much more demand-driven, and in Europe, because of natural gas, because of energy dependence, rather than essentially owning your own energy, the supply elements are much greater, and you need to look at various core measures of inflation in Europe, which are much more favorable and much more benign. I think the European monetary policy problem is fundamentally more complex than the American one, because I think it's clear when you have overheating that you're supposed to have done something about it. And it is 
less clear when you have increases in headline inflation, but not core inflation. Is that similar to the situation the U.S. faced post-World War II? I think there is an interesting question as to why the smart people were wrong in 1943. That is, if you were a thoughtful macroeconomist in 1943, what you were deathly afraid of was that when the war ended, we'd go back to secular stagnation and have another depression. And that did not happen. And why did it not happen is, I think, a, a really important question. Some of the answers are because nobody could buy a car or a house or build a car or a house for five years. So there was a huge pent-up investment demand. Some of the answer was that there was a huge spending demand because people accumulated assets because of the rationing. Some of it was that the country decided to build suburbs on a massive scale. And the fertility rate decided to go to four children per woman, which created all kinds of demand of, for all kinds of things. Some of it was that there was a massive set of public support for investment in housing. In that post-World War II era that I visited briefly at the start of this journey, the inflation rate went above 20% before it dropped down to negative single digits. And that was all within just a couple of years. This period also marked the beginning of the golden age of capitalism. Will today's central bankers engineer a similar feat? Or are we headed for a new era of stagflation? The outcome will have broad implications across the global financial markets. Long-term investors know the danger in trying to time the markets. But managing duration risk across the portfolio, including equities, may help to improve downside risk. Thanks to Larry Summers for his macroeconomic insights. Join me, Albert Chen, for the next episode of The Outthinking Investor, when we delve further into the post-pandemic war-torn global economy. And to learn more about inflationary shocks, listen to the first episode of this season. The days of disco may preview future inflation. The Outthinking Investor is a podcast from PGM. Follow, subscribe, and if you like what you hear, go ahead and give us a review. This podcast is intended solely for professional investor use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments involve risk, including the loss of capital. PGM is not acting as your fiduciary. The contents are for informational purposes only, are based on information available when created, and are subject to change. It is not intended as investment, legal, or tax advice, and does not consider a recipient's financial objectives. This podcast includes the views and opinions of the authors and may not reflect PGM's views. PGM and its related entities may make investment decisions that are inconsistent with the views expressed herein. This podcast should not be reproduced without PGM's prior written consent. No liability is accepted for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss that may arise from any use of the information contained in or derived from this podcast. This material is not for distribution to any recipient located in any jurisdiction where such distribution is unlawful. PGM is the global asset management business of Prudential Financial Inc., which is not affiliated in any manner with Prudential PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom, or with Prudential Assurance Company, a subsidiary of MG PLC, incorporated in the United Kingdom. Copyright 2022. The PGM logo and the rock symbols are service marks of PGM's parent and its related entities, registered in many jurisdictions worldwide.